Mishka Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him. What's up, Scotty? How are you? Excellent. How are you? I'm I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. The um best and worst thing about life is uh it, the ruthless progression forward that um no, no matter how you feel uh the dog needs to eat and the cat box needs to be cleaned and uh all those little tendrils that connect you to this this mortal coil require your attention <laughs> the um yeah been a fucking hell of a week dude the for sure um, how's, uh, how's sunny Chicago? It's good. It's, it's pretty nice out. It's starting to warm up, starting to thaw, feeling good. I've been getting some good runs in, uh, helping our friend Rick with his doc documentary. He said some, <laughs> he wants to, he said it's going to take another year. Um, yeah. The, those filmmakers are fucking crazy, man. The, I, I, I hope to never take on a project that big. The, um, I mean, it, it's taken me, uh, you know, whatever, six years of edging to, to start a podcast, uh, you know, a podcast, which is basically a commitment of, uh, an hour, an hour a week. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I mean, I, there's a lot of podcasts that come and go cause it's, you know, and it's, it's, it's definitely one of the things that isn't, um, you know, you, you put in the work and then, and then you get the money. Like it doesn't work that way. You know, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a really hard way to make money. Yeah. The only harder way I know of is selling the goddamn merchandise. <laughs> the, um, were you lining yourself up for a plug right there already? Where do we like six minutes into it? You're already, uh, Oh no. I mean, <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, I would rather sell it at the races. That's, that's when, that's the, the good way to do it, you know, but just, you, you think you gotta you gotta order it, you gotta buy it, you gotta pay somebody, they gotta package it, you gotta send it out, you got the postage, you know, then you got 20 emails every time something goes wrong. I mean, as a as a lawyer that charges three hundred dollars an hour, I assure you that it's it's the least amount of money that I make in my life doing that. Uh if you I, I don't know, if you look behind me, you can see those are a bunch of hoodies that I'm like way overdue on sending out. The those are for like my friends and family. So if you're get you're getting it for free, uh you can fucking wait till I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, some people, they order and then they think that, you know, they're ordering from Amazon. Like, yeah, where yeah. is it? I ordered it last week. Where is it? You know, yeah. you want to be nice, but you also want to be like, you know what? This is like my, you know, third job. Yeah, exactly. Um, let me give you an introduction for people who don't already know who you are, because I have zero podcast editing skills and what is, um, what is quickly becoming a staple of our, uh, nascent podcast is uh me awkwardly introducing my guests in front of them so uh scott coomer is a lawyer from chicago um that is probably the the least important uh hat you wear in, in terms of our relationship um i met scott because um he was a fan of my writing and the and then over the years the the uh the balance of power has shifted uh where i've become a fan of yours and you've gone on to do great things like creating this um your flatlanders running group and the your podcast 10 junk miles and basically a um sort of an amorphous moving cloud of uh supportive ultra running positivity 
in the Chicago area. Uh, Scott, welcome to the show, whatever this is, if this is a show. Thanks for doing this, man. It's an honor to be on any podcast, and it's a, a special honor to be on yours. The um, what? Uh, what do you have coming up? The you're so you're through the the illness and the toothache and all the sort of um, the case of the olds that derailed your uh, your turkey trot this year. Correct? I had a. I was in need of a root canal. And I was in need so bad that after they did it, I went back three times to get the, the, the finishing part of it. And it was still too infected to, to work on. So it took me four visits for that. He's like, this thing is all infected. Uh, but yes, I'm, I'm on the mend from all of those things and training in earnest for the Leadville 100 in August. So that's my big goal of the year is just to, to run that race. Wow. I, I, um, let me let me say in all uh, honesty, good luck with that. I hope to never know what that's like. The um, I admire your dedication, and uh, I don't know. Every time I look at the runs you're hosting, the runs you're putting on, the the runs you're participating in, I I always think like I'm never going to run with Scott ever again because the the shit that you do is so. Um, I don't. I mean you know, Robin, our zones, you know, says, you know, do epic shit and stuff like that. But the, I feel like there's a special kind of, um, masochist who, um, who is a, a middle of the packer or a back of the packer, um, who's still going out and doing this stuff, you know, I mean, if you're elite, if you're, um, competitive, if you're getting your, you know, your name in the, you know, on, on all those ultra running glossy, those glossy ultra running magazines, the, all those, you know, big uh, sponsor dollars, the, you know, there's, there is, you know, a certain amount of sort of glory or pride with it. The, um, you and I have never been those runners. No, I've always been a back of the pack. I, I mean, I've, I've finished high up in a couple of events randomly, which was a function of not, not having a lot of competition or me having a, just a remarkably good day. But I'm when I stand at the finish at the start line of a race, I'm usually thinking, am I going to finish? Like, that's my fear. Am I, and I've had a, a, a large number of everybody's at the finish line, where's Scotty finishing at the last minute type finishes as well. You know, so that's yeah. definitely, I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't even call myself a, a mid-packer. I mean, I'm an aspiring mid-packer. <laughs> I, uh, I got 11th in a hundred K race once the, um, 12 people signed up for that distance. <laughs> so you were second from last. Yeah. That's one way of looking at it. Yeah. The, but I mean, in the, um, uh, in the tour de France, there's the, uh, what it's called the you know, um basically the red lantern award yeah. which is you know the the last the last finisher um the it has its own special level of distinction to um to be the last person to race and, and and not to drop out not to just be like well fuck it man you know everybody's waiting on me i'm a hassle the you know um i'm gonna die of chafing and uh i don't know it takes a lot of guts and a lot of courage and a lot of uh you know questionable mental health i think to continue at that point when you're so exhausted and it's sort of like and the party's over well i mean i'm a race director of a 100 mile race and some of the people that finish in the top 25 percent finish with tears in their eyes all yeah. of the people that finish the last 25 
finish with tears in their eyes. You know, like yeah. those people, you know, have been out there an extra day. You know, and, and it's funny, I just got done. Um, there's some races where, you know, you get a hundred mile race, the, the traditional award is a buckle. And some races, they give a bigger buckle if you go under 24 hours or a fancier buckle. And I just got done working with the buckle lady today to make our buckle, uh, which is already a beautiful, beautiful buckle. This is the, the Badger 100 buckle. Wow. If you can see that. But we are, I'm making a bigger one for the people that take more than 30 hours. So it'll be the only, the first race I've ever heard of where the people is that it, are. It's going to be like a, a WWF, like, you know, the buckles as big as your face. Yeah. No, it's going to be like maybe 25% bigger, you know, but uh, I want to give them a special award because if you finish the first place finisher finishes in like 13, 14 hours, the last finisher finishes in 36 hours. Those are two so, radically different experiences, two radically different races. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I feel like we need to dive right in with the, the sort of, uh, NA, AA, um, you know, prison line of questioning of, uh, what, are, what are the decisions that you made that brought you to this place? I, um, you know, I want to dive right into the A sober place or well, all of this. I mean, I, I, you know, people get sober one way, basically, which is by fucking everything up, you know? And then I think that, um, the, you know, the dark place of, um, addiction led you to the darker place of sobriety, which led you to the even darker place of ultra running the, so let's, um, Let's roll the tape back. Let's, you know, let's look at your sort of origin myth. The, um, when did you start using? What was your drug of choice or what was your first drug? What, you know, what got you rolling? And um, I, I guess just unfold that story for me. Well, I grew up in Milwaukee and uh, I used to always tell people that uh, no one drinks like they do in Milwaukee, except me and you and just about every other alcoholic who drinks exactly like they did in Milwaukee. Uh, and, and I grew up not liking drinking, but uh, it being really available. You know, I, I come from a family of brewers. My, my grandpa worked at the Miller Brewery. There's beer everywhere all the time. When I was a little kid, what do you want with dinner? Beer, wine, milk, or soda. You could always have beer. In fact, you got beer when you mow the lawn. Uh, and my sister mowed the lawn a lot. I did not. Uh, I didn't enjoy alcohol. I didn't like the taste of alcohol. Uh, I didn't aspire to drink it until the eighth grade dance and i was nervous and didn't know if the girl was going to like me that i was going to meet and me and steve simchek down the block decided we were going to take the coke bottle and fill it half up with brandy and drink that between the two of us and little did i know that that was going to create the magic potion and i would get the girl and i would feel okay dancing and i wouldn't be scared and then the rest is history because now i know that uh, if if i have feelings or if I have, uh, if I feel uncomfortable, which for someone like me when I was a kid was all of the time, uh, alcohol is a solution to that problem or drugs eventually too. So that kind of set me, you know, from about the eighth grade on uh, down the path of suffering from the disease of more, you know, whatever, whatever the question was, the answer was more. And uh, I, I never stuck a needle in my arm. And uh, they didn't really have a lot of crack going around when I was when I was younger, but just about everything else, you know, found its way into my system, and and I enjoyed all of it, and I wanted as much of it as I could. It's um, 
it's interesting to me that um you know when you're describing that that first drink the, and it's funny you know because like the the alcoholic inside us can just be like you know uh sort of asleep in the corner forever and then somebody's like uh oh you know brandy and a bottle of coke and then he jumps right up and he's like i'm here i'm here i'm here i was like that sounds fucking amazing you know the but it's interesting to me that when you're when you're discussing that sort of magical first drink, uh, you did, you're not saying it was perfect. It was amazing. Um, you know, it, it was incredible. You said I felt okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's like the most powerful feeling I think for, uh, for a kid, for a future alcoholic, for um, someone that doesn't fit in, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I even remember being sober five, 10 years sober and in law school, like at like an orientation ceremony, standing in a room full of everyone that was at their first day of law school too, and feeling like I didn't fit in. And like, I couldn't, you know, like I felt like an outsider. That's just been, you know, it's a through line through my life. You know, and I think that's a, that's a very alcoholic thing. We, we feel like, you know, we're unique and we don't fit in and we're very self-conscious of ourselves. Yeah, this, um, I mean, I, I, I don't, obviously I'm not, you know, uh, 1500 years old, so I don't, I don't have the, the narrative frame for it, but in, in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, this feeling of being an outsider is, um, a problem of our time or a problem of, you know, addicts and alcoholics, you know, the, um, virtually every person I've spoken to on this podcast, and I think every person I will speak to will describe themselves as being an outsider you know the um and when when i think of you now and the role you play in in chicago in running in you know in our world um the last word i would think of is uh an outsider yeah well i'm i'm exceedingly comfortable in my own skin today i mean yeah yeah, I mean, I, I guess that is the end result of going through the, you know, the ringer of alcoholism and addiction and getting sober and, you know, going through all that. Um, well, and for me, that's the, like when, you know, and we've debated about this before, but when I talk about like working a program of recovery, like a 12-step program versus just quitting drinking, you mm-hmm. know, that's to me the big difference. You know, I had, I had no problem not drinking for six, seven years and ignoring everything that all those people told me or wanted me to do and all of that literature and the meetings and the spot. I didn't do any of that shit, you know? Yeah. But when I did, that's when I suddenly started to feel comfortable living in my own skin, like living life on life's term. And that wasn't something that I ever even thought about when I got sober. That wasn't something I was trying to get or that I thought might be at the end of that path. Uh-huh. But that's to me, the incredible thing of working that self-reflection and working that program is that feeling that, you know, I, you know, I always describe it this way. And I'm sure there's people that, that will relate to this, that like when I was a alcoholic, if I went into the, like, let's say tomorrow I go to Starbucks and I get a coffee and the lady gives me the wrong change. When I get back out to the street, I'm going to say to you, Mishka, I got to go back inside. The lady screwed up my change. But if I'm an alcoholic, I would come out and say that lady fucked me. She took my money. She ripped me off, you know, and that that's like the difference between the the world is happening to me or the world's just happening. And that's what I got from, you know, getting sober and working the steps. 
a lot to respond to there. Cause I, you know, I, I'm, um, you know, one of the things that an analog in my father's behavior that I, you know, I see in like Trump's behavior and like my sister's ex-husband and like all these you know, sort of guys who I really resentful of. And I, I keep in my head as the opposite of role models is that sort of like aggrieved male thing of like a red light. This always happens to me, you know, and I'm so fucking guilty of that you know, always, you know, the morning again, you know, this is an outrage, you know, um, the, so let's, let's back up a little bit. What, um, what precipitated you, uh, getting sober, making your first stab at, um, at getting sober and, um, sort of, I guess, follow that narrative there. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I dropped out of college to, to pursue a, a life in the restaurant and bar industry, which I thought would be way more lucrative. And uh, I, I found myself working at a bar where I could drink all day and uh, cook. And uh, I love the I love the bar. I love the place. I love the people. But um, looking around, everybody was stuck. Like nobody was going anywhere. And the nights are getting longer and the days are getting shorter. And my friends are all becoming increasingly more uh drinking and drugging and going to the bars and you know that just became my life and uh you know i just i remember having kind of a lucid interval where i just kind of looked around me and said everyone around me is going nowhere and i'm going with them if i don't change something and uh what i decided was that alcohol might not be getting in the way of where i want to go but it certainly wasn't helping and that maybe i should try to live life without drinking and see if that made any kind of a change. So leading up to my 21st birthday, which was the last time I drank, I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna take some time off drinking and see what happens. That was the plan. Such a uh, such a precocious youth. Uh, I had a similar uh, I had a similar thing when I was turning 21. Where I was like, well, if this is legal now, like, what's the what's the point? What's the thrill? I've already, I've had every good drink I'm going to have, um, you know, and I've thrown up off of virtually every kind of alcohol, you know, and, uh, and sure enough, a short 10 years later, I, uh, I, I quit drinking for good. Well, and bear in mind that I've been, I've been able to drink for as long as I could remember. I mean, yeah. if I would come home drunk in, you know, 11th grade, it wasn't a big deal to my parents, you know, yeah. no, no one really cared. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the fact that I couldn't do it that made me want to do it. It's just as much as, you know, I just, I just felt stuck. I just really felt stuck. Yeah. The, um, one of the tattoos that I have, it was supposed to be a big elephant tattoo because my, uh, my older sister was obsessed with elephants and we had had a, like a, a big and a long falling out. And I wanted her to know, you know, not just that I was sorry, but that for the rest of my life, I was committed to, um, to working out my relationship with her. And, um, and then before I got it, I read the, um, you know, a yoga teacher told me about the story of Ganesh as um, the remover of obstacles. And I was like, Oh, fuck. Yeah. I will be that white dude with a tattoo from another culture that he got from his yoga teacher, because the, is that thing of just the, um, you know, that image or that story or that idea of the remover of obstacles was so, um, poignant to me. And that's, you know, one of the things I've tried to write about when I write about quitting drinking is that, you know, no matter where you want to go or who you want to be in your life, alcohol will always be an obstacle. It's, you know, the, it's never going to help and it's always going to hurt, you know, 
the um but it wasn't just uh it wasn't just alcohol for you either was it drugs drugs too for sure i mean a lot of pharmaceutical drugs we loved pills love pills a lot you know uh you know pot coke just about everything lsd i mean that's like the one that i look back and i miss that you know like i could just have one you know that that was the one i liked the most but um yeah i i didn't say no and and i never said enough and i liked everything but i think that the the main problem was was alcohol you know that 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 was the the i mean i remember going to work in a bar and saying i'm not going to drink tonight and then somebody would you know like buy me a shot and the next thing you know i'm you know trying to find my house you know walking up and down the alley at you know at the end of the night it's just if i have if i have a drink i know that there's a chance that anything could happen and that uh it's over that's just the way it worked the um a friend of mine was liquidating his baseball card collection and he had a doc ellis card um if you're a if you're a baseball fan i'm not a baseball fan i'm a I mean, I'm an LSD fan. So I know that Doc Ellis pitched a no hitter uh, while on acid one day. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my buddy uh, sent me the, you know, the card and he sent a quarter hit of acid. Um, and I was like, just tiny little piece of paper. It's not going to fucking do anything to me. Right. You know, so I, um, I took it one day and went for like a, whatever, six and a half mile lap. Um out to the canal and back and I was running and didn't feel anything like felt kind of a little bit good, you know? And, um, and I was like, Oh, it, it didn't do anything or it did such a small amount, you know? And then I came back and, uh, my neighbor had a, you know, has a five-year-old daughter and, uh, she came running around the corner of the house, uh, screaming, going like this. And I was like, Oh fuck, here it is. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and I had to go hide in the house. And I, uh, but I did, I watched uh, detective Pikachu, which I would actually, I would recommend strongly as one of the finest moments of uh, American cinema, probably ever. It was, you know, it was, it was incredibly compelling. <laughs> We've already gotten to the, the deep sigh part of the conversation. How, how many podcasts have you done now? Uh, I think this is, uh, what are my third or fourth? The um you know the last one i did was just me sort of like ranting at you know, yelling at my at my computer about uh lanigan for an hour um i don't i don't know if that, if that counts or if that's just an open therapy session or something like that but it's i think lot- i've never done it like i've never done the solo podcast oh dude it's terrifying nobody should ever do it the um bill burr does solo podcasts and i think it, you know in order to to do something like that you need to be um you need to be brilliant and or damaged you know um i you know i did make a couple of notes i had you know sort of a a narrative arc or a story that i wanted to, you know to get through the but doing it um you know the day after lanigan died and doing it by myself was um, I'm still, uh, exhausted from that, you know, and that was, um, that was five days ago. It took a lot out of me to just sort of sit there and talk about my feelings, um, to a computer, uh, that I knew I would be recording out and then sending out for sort of strangers to, uh, to, to sniff at and inspect and interrogate and whatever. I can imagine if Dylan died, Kyla would say, don't go anywhere near the computer. I don't want you recording anything, you know? Yeah. Just stay up here. <laughs> Yeah. The, um, it's, you know, 
I think I'm going to be doing a bunch of podcasts with, you know, some Lanigan's friends and stuff. So I, I don't want to like let it completely take over this podcast, but the, um, man, it's fucking hard losing a hero who you're friends with too, because it's like the, a check in every box, you know, and you lose all those people in one fell swoop. Um, and then, you know, it's like the, um, grief or mourning is sort of like uh it's like honeycomb you know you you mourn you know your co-worker or you know your drinking buddy you know when you were a kid or um a songwriter who touched you or something like that but then um too many of those cells break at once and then it's just like the whole thing you know um it all just blurs together the um did you when you got sober when you were 21 that was sort of your first dance with it though right um or did you did you hold the line from there i held the line i, I mean i've been continuously sober since my the, since my 21st birthday but so I didn't, bizarre <laughs> i did not go to a to a 12-step meeting the next morning and then you know work the steps and get sober and you know what what i did was kind of ignored most of that I, I went to a 12-step meeting maybe three months after my my first day sober and everybody was like mm, like 70 and talking about jesus and i was just like this is not my thing and uh so i had some friends that had some sobriety that i used you know for help used is a good word for it too because i didn't give them anything i just took and uh you know as time went by i would start to you know, like what i would do is i would have a bad day and I would find a 12 step meeting, go there, cry, unload on the room. I wouldn't read the steps or do any of the stuff. And then I would just come back next time I'm miserable again, you know, and, and tune everybody out. So yeah. I did about a good five, five-ish years of just basically white knuckling it and using, you know, friends and, and stuff to help me get by. Um, but I was also in deep therapy because when I got sober is when I realized that there had been some arrested development in my life that I wasn't emotionally mature, that, you know, there was sexual abuse in my past from my father that I never really addressed or did anything to, you know, take care of. And all of those things, you know, probably played a big role in when I decided to quote unquote, try life without alcohol, everything just falls apart and I become, you know, just miserable. And I think it was, now I have to deal with that. Now I have to figure out, you know, everything from how to clean my car out to go on a date without drinking to deal with these, you know, damages from my childhood, all of which I've never had to deal with because the answer was always, if anything makes you uncomfortable, just have a couple of drinks and everything will be better again. So uh, I had a lot of work to do, and but I didn't do it uh necessarily the, the the right way in the beginning you know according to people in 12 steps it was more me just figuring out my way yeah the I mean, i would counter that if you've been so continuously sober since you were 21 that you did it the right way and then you found the right way well all pals are perfect for sure but you know i i think that there if i could go back and do it over again i might have did it differently yeah myself as well the um the analogy that I always use about, you know, sort of our emotional development um, and the, the wonderful, like emotional procrastinating effects of alcohol, um, you know, it's sort of like uh, 
parking ticket where um you get a parking ticket and then you're like i mean fuck this they're trying to steal from me you know the i was only there you know half hour longer than i was supposed to you know this is ridiculous you know the i'm not gonna pay it you know and then uh three years later they tow your van and they're like uh yeah it's uh, 800 with late fees <laughs> and you're like what it was a fucking 15 dollar ticket and it's like well yeah no had you paid it at the time it would have been a 15 dollar ticket but now um it's just magnified you know the or it's like having you know having a tiny pebble in your shoe at the beginning of a 50 miler like if you stop and untie your shoe take your shoe off take your sock off get the shoe, you know, get it out of there, put your sock back on, put your shoe, you, then you're frustrated because you're behind the pack at that point. But if you, if you're, if you just like man up and, you know, um, force yourself through it, then you're not going to make it, you know, the, most bad things get worse. Yeah. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. The teeth really. Right. You know, like I got a toothache, yeah. I'll wait till the turkey trot, then I'll go, you know, I, I I was gonna wear the um the turkey trot shirt that you sent to me, but it's actually it's in the wash because I wore it already. So instead, I wore this is a Scott. I don't know if you know about this. This is a thing that normal people do. Shorter run of a turkey trot where I did the big option, which was a half marathon. The that's that's also a thing you can do. It doesn't have to be a hundred miles. Well, I, I wasn't into long distances until I read a book. So <laughs> you're kind of the cause and, and the person to blame anyway. So, um, and that's why I've called us here. The, um, I want to zero in on, uh, some of the dark stuff, uh, cause that's what this is all about. And, the and also for my own selfish things, because, you know, the, um, it's no secret that I have had a total dog shit year. Um, the, and one of the positive, I mean, I think we've all had a pretty fucking rotten year um, and not trying to compare my experience to anyone else's, but this is probably the worst year that I've had since I've been sober. The, um, the end result, you know, was that I'm, uh, I'm back in therapy. Um, got a great therapist. She's wonderful. The, and uh all sorts of shit is sort of coming to light that i didn't didn't deal with or didn't think about or didn't deal with and think about um one of the things that came to light is that um i was not just uh born bad or um a bad kid or a weirdo or a pervert or an outsider or whatever you know that that thing that happened when i was a kid that i thought was my fault was actually um legit sexual abuse um and not something that i as a five or six year old um can be held responsible for the um it's it's funny not not funny haha it's curious for me to think about it because when i think back to the experience itself um i have no sense of trauma there's no sense of trauma there of like um kicking and screaming and crying or you know anything like that the and i don't feel any um uh 
any any anger or resentment about it you know i mean the um you know the person who did it to me was you know they were themselves a child albeit whatever seven years older than i i was you know and and i would bet you know dollars to dimes that she was a you know she was a victim of abuse herself um but then consider you know considering what a, a small um or small appearing episode in my life that was and how little a sense of trauma I, I feel around it the god damn it when i go through my life it appears to have affected every single fucking thing that has followed um so i don't know i you know if at any point i ask a question you don't want to answer just tell me i don't want to answer that or i'm done talking with this and we can even go back and edit stuff out if you want but the i feel like these are conversations that are important for us to have um because the older i get the i was at band practice with with heels with you know with my buddies and we were um sort of getting ready to get down to work and um you know, one of them made a joke and I, and I, I sort of like looked at them cluelessly and they were like, what the fuck? You never got molested when you were a kid. And I was like, no. And they were like, fuck's wrong with you. Like, were you, were you a fat kid or were you an ugly kid? Or like, what's, you know, the, and it really like took me aback, you know, that I realized that, um, it, uh, that they'd been talking about it and been open about it for such a long time. And that, you know, they and their friends were so open about it that um i don't know it's way more prevalent than than i expected way more um, prevalent yeah so i'm you know I, I i guess i'm curious as to your experience you know particularly how you how when you understood and accepted that it was sexual abuse when you were in your 20s how you went back to navigate that um, how it affected your life up to that point, how it affects your life now, how you work through it, you know. It's super complicated. And um, it's something that people need to talk about for sure. Um, because, well, first, men need to talk about it more. Because when we talk about sexual abuse and sexual assault and rape, we talk about it in the context of women only usually. And I've found myself in the crosshairs of a lot of those same conversations being told that I don't know because I'm a man, that I can't imagine because I'm a man. And, you know, I think that there's, I think we forget that it happens to men too. Um, I also think that there's uh, all of the same shame that, that, that a woman has about talking about it applies to men. Uh, but I think that it's even worse when it's a man on a man when it's a father to a son, like in my case, that yep. it's something that is so horrific that, you know, and, and we'll talk about what it was like when it was happening, but it's also so horrific that you don't, a lot of, a lot of those people, they just, they stuff it down and they never confront it. Yep. And one of the main reasons why when I debate talking about it in front of groups or crowds or 12-step meetings or even podcasts is that, I know I'm going to get at least one or two emails from someone who says, I've never told anyone this before. And I'm telling you, you know, and yeah, that yeah. has happened to me maybe 25 times. Um, 
So it's a big deal to me. It's a real big deal. And I think that, that, um, that we have to, we have to have those conversations, you know, in my case, you know, I didn't know anything bad was happening. I mean, I mean, I would guess I would say that in the moment I probably did, uh, but I, my brain blocked it out in such a way that the next morning while I was waiting for the bus, I wasn't thinking about what happened last night. You know, I wasn't, you know, contemplating telling someone or, you know, thinking about what happened and being upset. None of those, I don't have any memories of that. I have memories of curling up in a ball in my closet and screaming and crying and wanting someone to come and ask me what was wrong. But if they did, I don't know what I would have told them because I would have never said to you, even if you made me tell you that that was happening, because in my mind, intellectually, it wasn't happening. And, and the reason why I know that is when, when my, my dad was the Boy Scout leader, molested all the Boy Scouts too. So this, this whole thing happens to me from, from birth until maybe past puberty, and then to all the other kids in the neighborhood too. And when I'm in high school, my, my parents had a falling out over it. And uh, then there was like an investigation in the Boy Scouts. My dad ultimately ends up getting arrested. Uh, and I'm at the jail fighting, saying that he's innocent and how can they be doing this? You know, the same person that did this to me thousands of times throughout my whole life, you know? Mm. Um, and I bet you I could have taken a lie detector test and passed it saying this never happened to me because it, it there's something about and i don't understand i'm not a doctor i don't have any expertise in this area but i think that there's some things that are so bad that they happen to you and even though you're a little kid or even though you're all fucked up or you're an alcoholic or whatever you are that your brain can figure out a way to block it out so that you don't have to it, it's just it's something that you can't it's like a math problem you can't do you know like i you know so my I would, you know, have a horrific experience with my father uh, the night before, and then I would be waiting for the bus, and, and if you, I would have been happy, and you would have never guessed it, and my family never guessed it. Um, you know, it, it's, it was a very strange thing, and it was something that didn't come to light to me until way later when I, when I quit drinking and started thinking about my life and putting the pieces back together, you know? It's, uh, it's incredibly layered too because you know there is this sort of um you know casual homophobia that we all grew up with um you know in our generation the you know which adds a layer to what you went through um that it was your father that it was somebody you trusted and then also as the boy scout leader then um i suspect that there you know there were probably people in the neighborhood who saw you as um you know, as, as part of some sinister machine or partially responsible for what he did. I'm not sure about that because by the time he got arrested, I was in, I was in college. I was a freshman in college and then we moved away kind of. So my peer group had changed okay. so much. Um, I mean, that's entirely possible. Uh, but I also know like my mom, her big fear was everybody knowing and everybody pointing at her in the store. So we had to like move to another part of town and stuff like that. Um, also that it it changes the way you feel about sex like growing up as a kid sex was something that excited me and scared the hell out of me at the same time because sex wasn't something that 
that I learned that you do with someone as much as it's something that someone does to you, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I was very uncomfortable about that when I was, a, when I was a kid too. Yeah. The, um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's so weird to, I mean, at this point in my life, I'm sort of, I'm still processing it as something new. You know, I was, uh, uh, really, I mean, honestly, I was fucking pissed at my therapist because she was insisting, you know, the, the way you're behaving is, um, like someone who has been through, you know, child sexual abuse and I'd be stunned if you weren't. And I was like, lady, I, I've done the work. I wrote a fucking book about it. I've been back, you know, through this over and over again. I'm telling you, it didn't happen. You know, the, and then I was like, um, it was like 20 seconds before I walked into her office that I finally connected the dots. And I was like, Oh, Oh fuck. She's right. And my, the, the shittiest thing then was not um, discovering or realizing that, you know, what I had, had been through was abuse, but that I'd lost the argument with my therapist was that I was going to have to go in there and be like, you're right. And I'm wrong. You know, the yeah you know one of the things that i think about too is the you know having lived having watched you know sort of me too and you know the me too and the times up movement sort of like really just um explode you know i was sort of sitting there in atlanta looking at my my facebook book feed just light up with virtually every single woman i know um be like well here's my story, you know, the, and the, you know, it didn't take me long to be sort of, to be like, well, uh, who's doing all this raping and molesting, you know, the, and I still think that overwhelmingly the answer is men, but the question is why, and what's the, what's the other side of me too and time's up, you know, and I think a lot of it is um, you know, that, you know, that the old adage about hurt people, hurt people, you know, and I think that a lot of, um, there's a lot of guys walking around full of, uh, rage, self-loathing, um, a dangerous sense of disconnection with themselves, um, who are victims of abuse. And then, um, instead of, it manifesting in them starting podcasts, uh, it manifests as more abuse, you know, the, um, so I don't know, you know, the, it's, it's something that I am selfishly trying to sort out for myself. And also the, you know, one of the things with finally breaking down and sort of starting this, whatever it is, this podcast, the, is, uh, you know, what do I have to add to the conversation? What, um, what is there not yet a podcast about? I don't know that there's the, you know, I don't know that there's anything that isn't already being podcasted about by multiple people, but, but these are the conversations that you and I, and, you know, you and a lot of other people have, um, when we're running through the middle of the night or, you know, when it's hour 16 and you're fucking falling apart and then, um, or at the end of a mushroom trip or something like that, you know, where there is a, um, a degree of sort of like rawness and openness, um, that's happening that we, you know, we start talking about this shit, the, and I don't know, I feel like 
I just have to endure the the awkwardness of dragging this out into the open. Um, you know, one, I, one of the things that I've been I've been honest about with the long run, and you know, with the stories that I've written, is that I'm glad that they help people, but the only person I was trying to help was me. You know, and it, it was you know what you described of you know sort of going to AA and just sort of like um, you know getting the mic effectively and being like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened you know i mean that's that's my entire literary career basically you know the um and it's nice to know that uh some people were accidentally helped along the way but it was but so much of it was just trying to figure out my own shit you know why do they have to be accidentally helped <laughs> i i don't Let's know talk about that word accidentally michigan what, why did why did you have to throw that in there did you accidentally uh, write the book uh, no, <laughs> I, I was like, oh, is that an option too? I can, uh, you know, I can defer that. No, the, I mean, I, I think, I think I'm doing, I think I'm being genuine and ingenuine by saying that, because I think I'm being genuine in that I, for me getting sober, um, so much of it has been recognizing my own selfishness and trying to figure out, uh, you know, what kind of selfishness is acceptable and useful and um, how much of it is something that I need to turn down or turn off entirely. Um, you know, and I think that, um, I think one, one, of the, one of humanity's greatest shortcomings is this binary thinking, you know, that like, well, are you doing, are you doing this altruistically or are you doing it for, you know, self-serving, you know, means, you know, the, and um, a great example is, um, you know, wearing a mask and getting vaccinated and stuff like that. That's something that I do that's absolutely self-serving, right? I don't want to get sick. And, um, and also it's altruistic because by protecting myself, I can protect people around me, you know, the, um, but uh, I don't know, man, I am so, uh, you know, my mom, God bless her. I love her. And also I just had self-help shit crammed down my throat the entire, my entire fucking life. And my, all my social feeds are, um, you know, the, Oh, I'm doing this to help people. I'm doing this to help people. And it's like, you're writing a book because you want to tell your story and because um, you, uh, you need to share because you need attention because we all need attention, right? We all do. Um, but if you say you're doing it to help people, then um, it's, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, this aw shucks demeanor um, that you're a hero or something, you know, the, um, so I, you know, maybe I hit it too hard to say, you oh, I'm, I'm not doing it to help people because I think that, you know, so many people who are like, I'm doing this to help people are, are doing the opposite. Um, well, you're reluctant to take the credit for the impact that you have. And I think, I don't, I don't think that those two things have to, I don't think you have to, um, claim, you know, title to the results. Uh, while acknowledging that you have the ability to to impact other people and inspire other people, you know, and yeah. and, and, and and that's a hard thing for me as a podcaster, as a race director, as a as a runner, you know. At, at some point, I said, you know what, every fucking thing I do impacts someone. Someone's watching, and it might be good, it might be bad, um, it might just play a minor role, 
but the guy that finally tells his wife that he was sexually abused or the woman that leaves her husband for beating her up or the guy that quits drinking or the person that runs their first half marathon. And if, if I played some role in that, I got to own that, you know, and it also has to govern my conduct going forward as well, you know, because I have to realize that I have the ability to impact or influence people and I have to use that for good, you know, and, you know, I don't get to go hide anywhere, you know, so if I'm out publicly being an asshole, you know, I have to know that, that someone sees that too. Yeah. I, you know, you make a lot of good points there. You know, it's, it's funny cause the, the same, uh, you know, conversation or, uh, or long bickering argument that you and I have, um, you know, where I, I give you uh, full credit for everything that you've done and say that, you know, reading my, uh, reading the long run was just, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, grain of sand in an oyster and that then the oyster goes on to do all the work, you know, and you give me more credit than that. I had that same argument with my therapist recently where she was like, oh, I just do my, you know, I was like, bullshit, you know, you've been incredibly helpful, you know, but, um, and then she said to me, what I always say to other people is, you know, that you're ready to change. Um, and that, you know, once you are ready to change, almost nothing can get in your way. But I think that there's, um, you know, there's the, that line from uh, from Spider-Man of, you know, with with great power comes great responsibility. And the inversion of that is, you know, with no power comes no responsibility. And I think that um, when I was drinking, when we were drinking, you find yourself feeling, um, you know, filthy and anonymous to crib a line from a uh, great poem by John Giorno. Um, but, and, and being filthy and anonymous is a state of grace in that you sort of, you owe nothing to nobody, you know, the, um, you're, by being powerless, you're also free from any expectation. And then, um, one of, it's really curious that you phrased it the way you did, you know, that every time you come forward uh, and speak about being a, um, you know, survivor of child sexual abuse and incest, um, that you get letters from people saying, you know, I've never said this to anyone. And I think you and I both approach those letters with the same combination of uh, gratitude and dread, because it's a great honor for somebody to to share that secret with you, you know, for the first time. And also, oh, fuck, man, you know, that's a lot to carry around in your head. And how do you respond, you know, and, and, and we know how important it is um, to not just to respond, but also to like, to give somebody the right response, you know, and if you're trained, if you're on the if you're traveling, you don't have your computer there. You just have your phone. Are you going to fucking thumb out something or what emoji do you send to somebody to say, so sorry, you got molested by your grandpa for, you know, for 10 years. You know, it's, it's tricky. I think I just thank I just thank them for sharing it with me. Yeah. I make them feel like they're heard. And I tell them that this is the beginning of, of the next, you know, journey. And that's of talking about it and, and, you know, talking to a therapist, talking to a, someone that they trust and that, you know, it's important that they, you know, think it through and talk it through. I mean, and, and they know that I'm not going to be that person, you know, that I can't help everybody that, you know, that comes to me, but I'm honored that they feel 
close enough to me to tell me that. And, you know, I, I just hope that they, but I know that, you know, it's like, it's like the time I got, got lucky with the girl in the, in the, in the ninth grade. And I, and I wasn't going to tell anybody. And then I told the guy on the bus, cause you know, that, he's safe. He's not going to tell anybody. I'll tell that guy. And then yeah. once I tell that guy, it, then it's just, it's just open. Now I'm telling everybody, you know, that, you know, once you tell one person, it becomes real. And then I think it's really hard to turn back and say, now I'm going to go back in my shell and, and, and not, you know, deal with this. So, you know, I mean, I just thank them. And, and I'm glad that, you know, it, it's an honor that, that I'm the person that they're going to share it with. Yeah. The, um, it's one of those things too, that the, I can't, I can't remember if I heard this from, um, from Rich Roll first, you know, he, you know, he said something about, you know, that secrets get their power from being secret, you know, that that's how they manifest their power over us. Um, and the, you know, one of the, you know, one of the first people I had to tell, you know, cause I was with, you know, with COVID and the pandemic and lockdown and all that stuff, you know, it's like, we all lost the huge circle of friends um, you know, that we had before. And then you have maybe like Kayla, um, Pedroza, Holly, and that's it, you know, the, and for me, you know, that was, uh, Oscar, my neighbor, my chat thread with heels and JT Habersat and my mom. And, um, you know, the, um, my, you know, my mom, uh, you know, knows the person. Uh, so yeah, having that conversation with her, you know, that was, uh, it, it was, she was sort of like the first person I had to tell and also the, the worst person to tell, you know, the, but you know, I, I will always resent my therapist for leading me to this truth and uh and forcing me to grow as a person um but you know but also once you it's it's you know it's all sort of like the going to a doctor and then they show you on the x-ray like oh yeah you know one of your one of your femurs is actually half an inch longer than the other one and you're like oh god damn that that explains everything. Like you gave me that little bit of knowledge that then I can, that's why my knee hurts. That's why the ankle on the other side hurts. That's why my neck's always out of whack, you know, the, and then you, you can sort of go back through your, through your past, through your experience. And uh, I don't know, it unlocks so much the, but I mean, also part of it is, uh, You know, I remember, you know, when I got sober and then I was, it took me a long time to utter the words, you know, alcoholic in, um, you know, in regards to myself, because that's such a permanent thing. And, you know, it's sort of once you cop to it, you can never be like, oh, well, I, I thought I was, but I was wrong. I just needed to, you know, not drive, you know, or whatever, the, whatever your obfuscation just, just is. Just alcoholic curious. Yeah, yeah. Human beings are endlessly uh, inventive when it comes from concealing ourselves from ourselves. The, um, but when I finally could wrap my head around that ugly word and, you know, talk to friends and be like, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, 
I, I need to tell you that I'm an alcoholic. And they're like, yeah, you, you think so? Yeah. <laughs> I remember going to band practice. Um, you know, my friend Zach was singing in a band, one of my oldest friends, you know, and um, they were like, you know, we want to support you in this new thing that you're doing that we don't understand that, you know, of not drinking and, uh, and running and doing pushups and stuff. And uh, they said, you know, do, is it, do we need to not drink around you? And I said, well, no, just, you know, just like, don't offer me a drink. And Zach looked at me and he was like, dude, I haven't offered you a drink in years. <laughs> you know, they, um, as sick as I was of my, you know, my bullshit, they were sicker of it, you know? Um, and similarly with, you know, with some people in my life tell, you know, sharing with them this discovery that what happened when I, when I was a kid was not, you know, concrete proof that, um, that I was bad, but that it was actually, um, I still have to do the fucking air quotes for it. it uh, abuse that I was molested, you know, that I, um, that something happened that I can't be held responsible for something that, you know, that sort of changed me immediately and forever. The, um, they were sort of like, yeah, <laughs> no, that's, you know, that's been, you know, clear to us sort of the entire time, you know, um, Yeah, it's been a heavy fucking year, dude. <laughs> I, I feel you. <laughs> the um, so where do I go with this podcast thing? So far, it's just been like a therapy session with some of my closest friends that then I like cover my eyes and hit share and post, you know, for the rest of the world to eavesdrop on us, uh, you know, bearing our souls and sometimes just griping about shit. The Nobody knows uh, where it's going. You're going to, you're going to find out, you know? And I think that if you go and you listen to rich roll, number one, you listen to 10 jock miles, number one, it's different. You don't know where it's going, you know? I always, so like I get consulted a lot from other podcasts that like, come on in and tell me your secrets and, and, you know, how do you make money and marketing and, you know, downloads, just all stuff that nobody wants to talk about. And I've, I've talked to a lot of podcasts about this. Some of them ripped off all my ideas and started their own show. But, you know, the, I think what I tell them is that I, and I heard this from somebody really early on, and it's just be genuine, be consistent and be interactive. Like those are the three keys that if you're, you know, people can see when you're acting or you're, you know, trying to, trying to create content. Like I never try to create content. I just, I just did the things that I was interested in and then attracted the kinds of people that were attracted to the things that I was interested in. So, mm -hmm. you know, like I could go out and get, I can get anybody in the fitness world to come on our podcast, but I don't get people to, to make the fans happy. I put people on to get the kind of fans I want to have. It's kind of like the, it's like the Kevin Smith version of marketing, you know, like I want, you know, 3000 people that would ride or die with me to the end of time and want to buy the hat and listen to every episode. And, you know, I would rather have that than 10,000 people that tune in once in a while. And they're like, Oh, fuck this guy. That's not interesting because then that allows you to have the conversations that you're genuinely interested in having, you know, like that's what I do is I find someone like, Right now, I'm getting ready to do the first non-running one. I've never interviewed anyone that was no connection to running whatsoever. And there's this one guy I listen to his podcast, and I always think, God, I wish he fucking ran. 
because I really <laughs> want to interview him, you know? And uh, what he is, is he has a show you would love. It's called The Hustle. And it's a podcast about, you know, he'll go out and find the, the bass player for Men Without Hats. Oh, you told me about this. Yeah. Yes. And they'll just talk awesome. about what's it like to be in the business and what did you do after and how do you pay the bills? And But this guy is probably the greatest super fan of music ever. Like if you mention an album, he'll tell you who produced it, who engineered it, who, is the, who are the session musicians, the, you know, all of the things. Behind, and, and it's just fascinating to me. So I really want to interview him. And I'm taking a big chance in doing it. But, um, you know, if the fans revolt, they revolt. You, that was one of the things, you know, in my head when I was sort of thinking about, you know, where, where I was sort of flirting with the idea of doing this is that I was like, oh, I should get, I should line up the people who I know who have the, you know, the, the biggest profiles, you know, uh, uh, Lanigan and Rich Roll and, uh, you know, Keith Buckley from Every Time I Die, Leslie Jameson. I, you know, I put together this, you know, sort of star-studded cast of the, the you know, people who I'm friends with, but who have the sort of most cachet in the world. And then I looked at that list and I fucking hated my guts because I was like, these are my friends, people who I became friends with because I liked them as human beings, you know, and sometimes the entrance was their art. And sometimes I met them first and then became a fan of their art. But I was like, what I would be doing is leveraging them and leveraging our relationship for likes, for heart emojis, for views. If, if you have them on, like if, like if you have Rich Roll on and you say, hey, now how did you come up with the idea of this book and what happened with your life and how did you become ultra and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that that's totally insincere. You already know that story. But if you have Rich Roll on and you talk to him about what's going on with your life and what's going on with his, and it's a genuine, real conversation about things that matter to you or things that matter to him, that, then it doesn't matter. Then it's fine. You know, like I have I have famous people on all the time, but we just generally talk about things that most of the other people don't interview them about, like things that I really want to know or uh, have a have a genuine conversation. So, yeah. I mean, to me, that's, that's where the, you know, that, that, that's how it can be different. Cause your relation, I mean, to, if, if I could sit in on a, like, a, like when you wrote that book about, um, about quitting drinking. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you would have said to me, I'm, I just sent a copy to Rich. He read it. Now I'm going to call him and we're going to talk about my book. I want to be on that fucking phone call. I want to hear that discussion. I think that would be so interesting. Someone that's kind of program oriented, talking to someone that's writing a book that's kind of saying that, you know, these are the reasons why it doesn't work for me. You know, like that would have been a real, I mean, and I think there's things like that, that you could talk to people, you know, like if you were talking to Lanigan about your music and, and what you want to do with your music career and, and, you know, like maybe feeling lost or trying to, you know, figure out what's next for that. Like that would be such a fascinating conversation for a fan of you or a fan of music or a fan of him or a fan of his music to listen to, you know? So where's it going to go? You don't know, but I mean, it could go so many different places and be so interesting, but you know, it's, 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 it's that whole idea that you can get a lot, a lot further in life by being interested in other people than by trying to get other people interested in you, you know? Yeah. The, you know, I mean, that's definitely something I want to preserve in, um, in the podcast is that, um, I was always a fan first, you know, the, um, 
I'm driving in my car and fucking sweet child of mine comes on. You know, I'm going to crank it. And that then if, you know, when I get to my location, if it's still playing, I'm going to sit in the car until it finishes playing. You know how many times I've heard that song, you know, but like, I'm a fan. I won 40 bucks off sweet child of mine. Cause I was like, bullshit. It's the fucking neck humbucker that he's on, not the bridge pickup, you know, the, and I, I, you know, I still love all that shit, you know? And, um, you know, so I guess for, for me a little bit, the, um, I feel like I lost my investment in the world, uh, to a certain extent this last, uh, this last year. And I'm trying, so I'm trying to, uh, reinvest in being a fan of the world again. Um, also like my friends got me through so much shit. Um, and I'm, I'm a terrible friend though. When's the last time you and I got on the phone and just talked for like half an hour or something like that? Never. <laughs> we oh, yeah, no, podcast sometimes. And like when I'm in town, like we run and hang out and I'll show up at your house unannounced and stay there for three days. The, but I'm, I'm shit at keeping in touch. You know, the, I, I did have one experience with Lanigan where, you know, I really regret that I didn't get to have a concerted you know, a sort of focused conversation with him on the podcast, because I think that that would have been great because there was a lot of uh, trust and affection there. But I remember being out of his house in LA once and I, I can't, I think it was like after I cat, I was doing cat sitting for him and I was just passing through and just wanted to sort of stop off and see him. And we were sitting out in his garage and we were talking about stuff, talking about music, talking about, you know, the, what my, problems were with music what was you know what was next for him you know the I think I teased him about maybe doing a Christmas album or something like that that because he's he's gone deep into you know he had gone deep into you know sort of electronic music um I mean stuff that was actually really influenced by the you know Chicago wax tracks um you know music of the 80s and uh the and I said oh you know what's next you know uh, a Christmas album and he said that he was going to do a uh, like a northern soul you want to do a collection of you know soul tunes you know with a big sort of kick-ass soul band and um and he was like oh have you heard this song and uh and he started to sing and i never saw lanigan perform live as as important and as meaningful to me as he was an art as an artist um i managed to fucking miss him every time and then like the last time that he was on tour the reason i didn't see him is because I was fucking, I was too close friends with him. I was cat sitting for him. So I couldn't go and see him on tour. And when we were sitting there together in his garage um, and he opened his mouth and started singing, I realized in a split second that, uh, that the fandom had left the room, that I, I had stopped sort of looking for or looking at his celebrity. And I was just there hanging out with my buddy. And when he started to sing, I looked at him and my first thought was like, man, you should be a singer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like just the, you know, that sound that came out of him, the, that I knew, you know, that it was like, I knew so well, but that, but also that, you know, I, I'd never, um, I'd never seen him perform live, perform live, and I'd never heard him sing. The I had I had like forgotten uh, 
I'd forgotten him and I'd forgotten myself and I'd forgotten that weird sort of celebrity distance between us uh, so much so that then uh, when he started to sing that, you know, the first thing through my dumb brain was like, oh, yeah, you should really follow up on that. You know, maybe maybe you could have a career as a musician. <laughs> uh, what a fucking jackass. The um, what uh, what do you have coming up next this year? You're training for for Leadville. Training for Leadville, putting on. I have three races that I'm putting on, so that's a lot of work. Yeah, um, they're all in Wisconsin. There's one in April, 50 mile, 50k, and a half marathon. There's one in July that's a hundred mile all the way down to a half marathon, and then there's one in October, which is like a timed running event um but we have a like our whole thing with the 10 jump miles racing our races is it's kind of like a it's a fun vibe it's a lot of party it's a lot of you know drinking and eating and good food and you know it's it, we don't really cater to the this is going to be the fast uh fast race as much as let's just all have a party together in the woods for the weekend um yeah. so it's but it's a lot of work putting that together and then putting the shows together. You know, I'm doing two shows a week, you know, so that's, it's a lot. Um, I produce another show for a friend, um, a bunch of Chicago news. And then we're also talking about adding um, another race this year to the, to the wow. queue. So between putting on three races and hosting a, you know, uh, international, uh, internationally famous podcast with like, you know, seven listeners. Um, no, it's a lot, it's a lot more than that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot, you know, and, and I'm lucky because these are side hustles, this and my, um, my race directing job. And I love every minute of it, uh, probably, um, more than my regular job. You know, and yeah. so I get to go stand at the finish line and sometimes people collapse in my arms and crying and tell me that I played a role in them getting to that finish line. And, you know, that's what I'm doing on the side for money. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. Maybe one day you'll join Rich Roll in the ranks of uh, reti retired lawyers. I think it's coming. I, th I don't think it's that far away. I mean, I don't think it's going to be tomorrow, but I think we're close, you know, and my wife's career is kind of taken off more and um you know i'd like to do race if i could do race directing and podcasting intentionally you know like as a as a career i think it would be better i think the product would be a lot better yeah um, i have other podcasts that i'd like to do i'd like to do a podcast about architecture i've just been it's just sitting in the shelf waiting to go um there's a lot of people i'd like to interview that i would want to go there to see them to be in the room because it's like even like like our interview when you were here people say those are way better just being in the same room as someone is yeah yeah you know. so i'd like to do some of that and there's there's still a good you know 100 100 to 150 people that i want to interview yet i mean there's there's no end and the list just keeps growing and i'll find out that people ran like you were talking about christmas music the guy that wrote grandma got ran over by a reindeer is an ultra runner what, really? I'm, I'm close to getting him on the show. Wow. Uh, he's an old guy. He's a doctor. And, you know, he kind of makes a living off that song still. Oh, yeah. 
Well, I mean, they say that if you write, you know, one, you know, white Christmas or something like that, you're set for life. I didn't know that you're also set for life if you write one uh, Grandma Govern over by a reindeer. Well, but, you know, that's yeah. that's always my favorite part of that, that the hustle podcast is when they get to the like the money part. And some of those guys like they had um, John Waite, uh, who's way underrated, by the way. Um, this is stuff that nobody heard of is, is really good. But they were asking, you know, it got to the money. They just like missing you is number one. I mean you don't need money's not an issue anymore. You know, like, yeah. that's it just yeah. for the rest of your life. Evidently that's all you need is one number one song. Maybe I should try and focus on writing a couple number ones. You should write, I shouldn't say this on your podcast. You could edit this out. If it's, if it's <laughs> you want to make a million dollars, here's what you do. And I'm taking 10%. All right. All right. Well, we have it here recorded. Here's what I want. I want a catchy song about the fact that Christmas is starting to suck because of global warming okay like some sort of an environmental twist on christmas like a uh, christmas green, green christmas like a blue like a green yeah green christmas <laughs> and if you could if it was catchy and you got all the environmental people and you got the christmas people and it came around every year that's it that's it it's all you need we'll see i'll uh, i'll take it under advisement as they say yeah I'd like to I'd like to hear you with Robin because I haven't heard her in a while on anything. Uh, Robin Arzone. Yeah, that that would be great. I haven't talked to her in years. The um, I was actually this this is yeah the this is funny. I so I almost got committed uh, last year and then I had to go back for another uh, checkup uh, because I had uh, like fucking precancerous shit that they just cooked off. Um, but I, so I had to go back to the same clinic, um, you know, where I, they were going to, you know, take me away. Um, and it's, it was weird going back there when I was really sort of at my lowest ebb and, uh, and I, they put me in a waiting room and I was like waiting for the doctor to come back. And I looked up and the, the cover of like, you know, Hispanic family or something like that was Robin holding her kid, you know? And I was like, and just in that moment, it made me laugh. And I was like, I, uh, I'm down, but I'm not out. And even if I was out, man, what a fucking crazy ride it's been, you know, like yeah. I have been, um, I've been incredibly lucky to, uh, to meet so many great people and have such a, just a wild ride, you know, the, and it's not over, you know, I mean, I, I, I think this podcast is, it's weird to say, but I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of it is sort of me trying to reclaim my humanity you know, we, you always hear that thing about, um, you don't stop running because you get old, you get old because you stop running, you know? And I think my, um, my sin has not been, um, you know, stopping running because, you know, since I lost my mind, my fucking running has gone through the roof, the, but, um, I become disinterested in the world and, uh, just having weekly conversations like this with some of my closest friends about shit that we're passionate about is really, uh, it's bringing me back in, man. Um, two speaking of two famous people, if you ever get Bert to come on here. Oh, I'm absolutely, I got, I'm definitely getting Bert to, to, to come Do on. Do you know his story about Slash? Oh, fuck. I, th I think I do. I feel like I've looked it up. The, I got to look it up again. The, that's a good that, I mean, story. That would be, you know, that would be an amazing room to be in the, just hanging out with Burton Slash. 
It's a really good story. It's in his book, but Bird is a great dude. He uh, he blurred my book. The oh, if you're listening because you listen to me on Ten Junk Miles, sorry, it's taking for fucking ever to get these books out. But uh, the end is finally in sight. Um, the should have uh, the author copies in my hand this month, and then mail out all the stuff for the uh, for the Kickstarter uh, either in March or in April. Um, you know, what you should do is you should come to one of our races. That's completely out of the question. You should, yeah. come, you know, what you should do: come to the race. Here's what you do: you get a whole bunch of books. Okay, you ship them to me. You come to the race, and then like during the packet pickup and all that, you do like the meet and greet, merch booth, sell books, autograph them, meet people, take pictures with them. Then you go run the race. All race. You could run a half marathon. It doesn't have to be long. I feel then, like one of the kids like selling M and M's on the fucking subway. You know, like the trying to raise money for our step crew. Yeah. I don't look at it that way. I look at it more like people want to meet you because you've been on the show and then you'll be running this race and people will be running by and they'll all be like, that's Mishka. You're Mishka. You know, and they'll want to run with you and talk to what, you. What, what do you mean they'll be running by? Maybe I'll be running by them, Scotty. Well, because maybe I'll be fast by then. It's back and forth and out and back and all the different um, distances and stuff, you know, so you'll, you know, you run into a lot of people on the trail. It's only like a 30, 30 mile trail, um, but oh, the hundred milers go out back and out again. So yeah. there's a lot of crisscross. The um, we'll see. The only uh, the only race that's definitely out for me is the turkey trot. Definitely never doing that again. Well, you got to go the other way. You can't just go one way. You got to do both. That would be a great ending, Rick. Rick, talk about a cool ending to your movie. I come back next year, and then I do it, and Mishka does it. We both do the whole thing. Imagine that. This is going to be the only edit in the history of the podcast. Is we're going to we're going to. Don't you think that would be cool to run a hundred miles? No, I think mean, it's a fucking terrible. In the cold and the gas stations and the. I'm going to vacuum this whole part out. Well, the, I... uh, Scott, I got to go. I, I got a call from the vet that my uh, my dog's ready to pick up from uh, from Alta Vista. Anytime, wait. anything you want. If you need me, just let me know. Thanks so much for doing this, man. The, you know, you're, you know, definitely one of the people who I wanted to have in this sort of like first round of guests while I'm trying to, trying to find my feet, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with this. I can't wait to listen. I'll be a, I'll be a hardcore listener. Awesome. All right. Good to see you, buddy. All right. 10-4. Take care. Bye. Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him.